with me to the New Testament, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, the letter of 2 Corinthians, where we'll read chapter 4 as well as verse 1 of chapter 5. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4 through to chapter 5 verse 1. We'll read this chapter in connection with the chapter that we'll take as our text for the sermon this morning from Genesis chapter 13, in connection with the theme of looking for, uh, looking for the things that are unseen. So looking by faith, with eyes of faith, for the things that are unseen but are yet eternal, as it says in verse 17 of chapter 4, or sorry, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So that's kind of the theme uh, that we'll be focusing on this morning in the sermon in connection with Genesis 13. So right now we'll read the whole chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. This is the Apostle Paul speaking also on behalf of the other apostles and his co-laborers in the gospel. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves in every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory or of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, We always carry in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory 
that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So far, our reading of God's word for now. Let's now sing in response and in preparation for the preaching Psalm 126, the stanzas 1 and 2. In that psalm that we just sang, it was a song of those who were in exile, the Israelites who had been uh, brought into exile by the Lord as a punishment for their sins. And in that context, in the context of also receiving promises from the Lord of restoration through the prophets, they looked forward to restoration to the land of Israel, restoration to the land which was meant to portray the restoration of paradise in the beginning. And that's why it speaks in the last uh, stanza there of their hope, the believer's hope that the Lord would grant restoration as in the Negev, that's the desert, the Negev desert. In the Negev's desolation, the rain-filled streams may turn arid sand into a green and pleasant land. That's looking forward to paradise. And that's also the theme that comes up in our reading, in our scripture reading and text from Genesis chapter 13, the theme of paradise. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 13, where incidentally we also find a reference to the Negev Desert. Our focus uh, for the sermon will be this verses 5 through 18, but let's read the whole chapter at this point. This is the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at this time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up, or literally lifted up his eyes, and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. 
Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. So far. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think would be your perfect paradise? What is your idea of paradise? If you think back on this past week or the past month, perhaps, there's probably been a lot of things that didn't really add up to that ideal picture of paradise that you might have. There were challenges, disappointments, hardship, pain, and problems. I expect none of these things are the kinds of things you would like to have in paradise. But what would you want to see and experience in paradise? What would be your perfect paradise? What are the kinds of things and experiences, in other words, that your heart is longing for and chasing after? In our sermon this morning, we'll be reflecting on this theme of paradise and where we are looking to find it. We'll be dealing with the very personal question of where is your treasure? Is it in the things that are now visible but temporary? Or is it in the things truly that are now invisible but are ultimately eternal and everlasting? Our Lord Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so the theme for our sermon from Genesis 13, verse 5 to 18, uh, taking from an expression that's found in Uh, Abram's instruction to Lot and then also in God's instruction to Abram is lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and see the paradise of God. First, not with eyes of flesh, but second, with eyes of faith. Lift up your eyes and see the paradise of God, not with eyes of flesh, as in the case of Lot, as we'll see, but with eyes of faith, as in the case of Abram. Now, when we speak of the paradise of God, what we mean by this is the place where perfect happiness is to be found, the place where our souls and our bodies experience complete rest and satisfaction. And in biblical and theological terms, paradise is the place where we actually began our existence when God created us. Paradise was the Garden of Eden. And if we are believers in Jesus Christ, 
Paradise is also the place where we will spend eternity when we've been resurrected. A new paradise. A paradise that the Bible describes as a garden city and a new earth in Revelation 22 and 21. We are in neither of those places. We are somewhere in between and in the place that we find ourselves today, if you hadn't noticed, we are not in paradise. Certainly not the paradise of God. And this is because of our rebellion against God in the beginning. We were, because of our rebellion, cast out, exiled from that first paradise. And the only way that we're going to find our way into the new paradise of the new heavens and the new earth is through faith in Jesus Christ, through union with Christ and his death and resurrection. Well, this is the whole Bible background to our text, which takes us from creation to new creation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the story of the whole Bible. And it's this story of the whole Bible that then connects the story of Abram and Lot in our text to our own stories if we are Christians. If we are in Christ, then we are fellow pilgrims with Abram and Lot, and we are with them on an epic journey of faith with the paradise of God as our ultimate destination. And God is calling us through his word to learn from this story to walk by faith on this journey and to not walk by sight, to walk according to the Spirit not according to the flesh, and to look unto Jesus, the promised Messiah for happiness, and not to the fleeting pleasures of the flesh. Well, in the first place, God calls us this morning to look for the paradise of God, not with eyes of flesh. Well, let's see this from our text. So the Lord has just delivered Abram and brought him up out of Egypt and into the land that he had promised to give to Abram's offspring. Now ever since Abram had first responded to the Lord's call to go to the promised land, that was in the end of chapter 11, ever since then his nephew Lot had been going with him. And we don't know much about Lot beyond what we're told about him in the book of Genesis except that in the New Testament, the Bible refers to him, the Apostle Paul, Peter refers to him as righteous Lot, which is rather surprising. And this suggests that Lot must have been a believer. That's also a comfort for, for us when we find that we are more like Lot than we are like Abram. It's a comfort because it points to the gospel that we are justified ultimately by faith and not by works. Lot certainly was justified by faith and not by his works. Because in the story of our text and the other stories about him in Genesis, neither the righteousness nor the faith of Lot are very evident. Rather, it's the behavior of Lot stands in contrast to that of Abram, who is portrayed as the man of faith. 
And as such, the example of Lot serves as a warning for us, also in today's story. The occasion of the story is a dispute between Abram and Lot's herdsmen. Both Abram and Lot had acquired flocks and herds in abundance. And so many that the text says the land could not support them both dwelling there together in the same place. Because their possessions were so many. Well, this then led to strife, to quarreling between the herdsmen because there just wasn't enough grass and water in one area to support both Abram and Lot's flocks and herds. It couldn't go on like this. And so Abram, Abram calls Lot over and he proposes a solution. He says, let's spread ourselves out a little. You go one way and I'll go the other way and we'll share the land. In fact, Abram literally, literally says, you go left and I'll go right. You go right and I'll go left. And that's actually significant if you understand that the way that the Hebrew language speaks of left and right, it speaks of east or north and south rather. So Abram is saying, you go north, I'll go south. You go south, I'll go north. But what does Lot do? Lot chooses to go east. Listen, and listen carefully to how the text describes that choice in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden, like paradise, like the land of Egypt. And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. That sounds a fair bit like that choice of Eve in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and to be desired, she took of its fruit and ate. Lot's choice resembles the choice of Adam and Eve in that it was motivated by the desires of the flesh rather than by faith in God and God's promises. This is the way that Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us the story. Notice how two times he refers to the wickedness of those whom Lot went to settle among. In verse 10, we're told that this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Those who were reading this story, the Israelites, after Moses had written this down, would have been reading it after uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Moses is reminding them of that. This is what Sodom and Gomorrah represent, wickedness. Verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Well, what is this meant to tell us? This is meant to tell us that Lot's choice is not the kind of choice that the Israelites in Moses' day, nor we in our day, should imitate. Lot may not have known it at the time, but his choice, according to the desires of his flesh, was going to result in long-term consequences because he chose a place outside the paradise of God, outside the place where God had promised his blessing to Abram and his family. And perhaps you remember someone else in the Old Testament who made a similar choice. In the days of the judges, when the Israelites were dwelling in the promised land, 
And there was a famine in the land because of the people's unfaithfulness. Well, rather than responding to that famine as being brought about by the Lord, calling to repentance and faith, rather than repent and call his fellow Israelites to repentance and faith, a man named Elimelech looked over to the land of Lot's descendants, the land of the Moabites, and he too chose according to the flesh. He looked over to the east and he saw that the grass was greener on the plains of Moab than where he was in Bethlehem. And so Elimelech took his wife and his sons and he left the promised land and went to live with the Moabites, looking according to the flesh and not according to faith in God's word. And except for a miraculous redemption, Elimelech's descendants would have lost their inheritance in the promised land forever because of this faithless and fleshly choice of their father. Do you recognize the story that I'm referring to? This is the story of God's amazing grace to a descendant of Abram, whose name was Naomi, and to a descendant of Lot, whose name was Ruth. Ruth, who was the grandmother of King David, from whose line is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Ruth, the Moabites, a descendant of Lot, became a believer in Abram's God. And what did that look like? She said to one of Abram's descendants, where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. How opposite to Lot's choice, isn't it? Because Ruth's choice was based on faith rather than the flesh. And so her choice drew her closer to the presence of the Lord and his people, closer to the paradise of God, and ultimately closer to Jesus. Lot's choice, on the other hand, was based more on the desires of the flesh than it was motivated by faith. And so it drew him away from the place and the people where God was, had promised to be especially present, away from the paradise of God, and away from Jesus, the Savior. And so let me ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, how about you? Which direction are you traveling today? Which direction have you been traveling this past week, this past month, this past year? Where are you looking for the paradise of God? With what kind of eyes are you looking? Well, our text calls us not to look with eyes of flesh for the paradise of God. God's word also says elsewhere in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, something very similar. It says, do not love the world or the things in, this, in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, these are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Well, our text and the choice of Lot and the consequences of his choice are a vivid illustration of this truth that the New Testament declares to us.
And so where are you looking for paradise this morning? Are you, like Lot, looking for paradise in the things you can see with eyes of flesh? Another way of asking the question is, where are you looking to satisfy your heart's desires for happiness and rest? Are you looking to perhaps more and better possessions, vacations, toys, things that money can buy? Are you looking to a better paying or easier job? What about family or children, a spouse, a girlfriend or boyfriend? Are you looking to people and relationships? Maybe alcohol and drugs? None of these types of things can bring us to the paradise of God. They can only draw us away from it, away from the presence of Jesus, our Savior, at least when we look to these things as our Savior. They can draw us away from the presence of Jesus, our Savior, who says, come to me and I will give you rest. So which direction are you traveling in your life? Are you traveling towards Jesus or away from him? towards the paradise of God or towards some other paradise, some mirage in the desert? Are you following the eyes of your flesh in the direction of the world towards Sodom and Gomorrah? If so, you need to stop. God's word calls you to stop, to turn around before it's too late, to not continue down that path because it leads to sorrow and regret. So don't look for the paradise of God with eyes of flesh, but with eyes of faith, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in him, in Jesus, is the paradise, the rest and relief that will satisfy the desires of your heart. To paraphrase a verse from Psalm 34, delight yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will satisfy the desires of your heart. That brings us to our second point, to look with eyes of faith. In Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you believers the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope, the paradise to which he has called you. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Did you hear that? The Apostle Paul speaks of the enlightening of the eyes of the heart. Did you know that our eyes, or sorry, our hearts have eyes? According to the Bible, our hearts have eyes. And these eyes of our hearts, they need to be lit up by the Holy Spirit before we can see, truly see spiritual realities, the things that are promised us in the Word of God. Because naturally the eyes of our hearts are blind. They are darkened. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, and we also read it together, 
Even if our gospel is veiled, as if there's something over our eyes blinding us, blinding our vision, then our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, to those who are dead, dying. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's referring there to Satan. He's blinded the eyes of the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And then he says that God, in the case of believers, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All this to say that what the Bible means when it speaks of the eyes of our hearts is our ability to perceive the good news of God's word by faith so that we view the gospel of Jesus Christ not as foolishness and weakness the way that the world views it, but so that we see the gospel of Jesus Christ presented to us in the pages of the Bible as the wisdom and power of God for our salvation. To put it in another way, so that we see in Jesus and the life of following Jesus, the paradise of God. So that we see in Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior, the paradise of God personified. Well, this is the message of our text for us in light of the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ then. Look with eyes of faith to Jesus for the paradise of God. Let's see this from our text in Genesis 13. We read in verse 14 to 17, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So that's the first promise. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And then he adds a second promise. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So there's two promises that the Lord makes to Abram on this occasion. He promises to Abram and his offspring forever all the land, and he promises him offspring as the dust of the earth, more than anyone can count, land and children, descendants. And notice how the Lord makes these promises. He says, I will give, I will make. And that's important. The Lord will give Abram the land. This is different than, than Lot's attitude where Lot was like, I will take this for myself. Rather, the Lord will give to Abram. The Lord will give Abram the land. The Lord will make Abram's offspring into a great nation, not Abram. What's Abram's role then? Well, Abram's role is to walk by faith, to simply walk by faith. And that's what he does in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He walks both literally and figuratively by faith. And he ends up settling by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there builds an altar to the Lord. 
What might be the significance of this? Well, as it happened by God's providence, it was in this region of Hebron that Abram would later buy a field from the Hittites in Machpelah with a cave in it for a burial place. There by the oaks of Mamre, Abram would be buried without having received his inheritance. Note that. Abram is going to be buried without receiving what God promised to him. So what happened to God's promises to Abram? Well, while Abram's body rots in the cave, the promises of God stand firm. And one day, Abram will receive his inheritance because, as Hebrews 11 says, Abram died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them by faith and greeted them from afar. Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So in other words, Abram was looking not with eyes of flesh, but with eyes of faith for the paradise of God. And everyone who has died in faith, who does die in faith, will one day be raised from the dead, given new glorified spiritual bodies in which we will lift up our eyes and see the paradise of God an inheritance that won't spoil or fade away. Even now, believers experience the first fruits of that physical resurrection as the Holy Spirit unites us by faith to Jesus in whom we experience a spiritual resurrection of new birth. As Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. That's the paradise of God. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is the same inheritance as God promised to Abram and his offspring in our text. The inheritance that Abram saw by faith. Now you might think, wait a minute. I thought these promises in Genesis chapter 13 had to do with the Israelites in the land of Israel. And that's true up to a point. There is an initial fulfillment in the Israelites in the land of Israel. But when we come to the New Testament, the gospel proclaims that the Old Testament land and people of Israel are in the end only a picture and pattern of the church of Jesus Christ and the new creation that he will bring. You remember those two promises God made to Abram in our text of land and offspring? Well, in the big picture of the whole Bible, which takes us from creation to new creation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we can see that these promises to Abram are ultimately fulfilled through Jesus' death and resurrection, first in the church, the people of paradise. And second, in the, re- in the re- recreation of the whole earth, the place of paradise. Through Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abram, believers from all nations become heirs with Abram, not only of the land of Israel, but of the whole world. As Jesus says in his, one of his Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth. But like Abram, 
And like Jesus, Abram's offspring, we must walk by faith and not by sight, looking not to the things that are visible and temporary, but to the things that are unseen but eternal, the things that are revealed to us in the word of God. We must look for the city whose designer and builder is God, even though we may die before we receive our paradise, just like Abram. We're in it for the long haul. We need to have a long-term vision given to us by the word of God. We need to be able to take to heart the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know, we are confident, we are assured that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in the heavens, not made with human hands. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us now the Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. In one glorious day, we will see the paradise of God when our faith turns to sight. We will see a new heaven and a new earth and the holy city, New Jerusalem, as it's described in Revelation 22. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life yielding its fruit each month and its leaves for the healing of the nations. And the servants of God will worship him before his throne. And best of all, on that day in the paradise of God, Revelation 22 verse 4 says, we will see God's face. In the meantime, as we look forward to that day by faith, we see the glory of God already in the face of Jesus Christ, in the light of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, lift up your eyes this morning and see with eyes of faith the paradise of God promised to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In all your pain, with all your emptiness, look not to things on earth, but to Christ above. Because he alone can give you rest and satisfy the desires of your heart. Look unto Jesus and see by faith the paradise of God. Amen. Let's now sing as our song of response, hymn 74, the stances 1 through 3.